Research Pages, a podcast all about supporting academic research. I'm Nate, a librarian at the University of Cambridge. And I'm Andrew Page, a computer scientist from the Quadrum Institute. We are both information professionals supporting research, but coming from very different angles. We hope you enjoy listening. Open access publishing is like a roller coaster. Sometimes there are frustrations with publishers wanting to keep the status quo. Other times there are highs where funders and academia push back. So Neve, can you tell us what the latest developments are from the US and what it actually all means? I was really excited this week because the Office of Science and Technology Policy in the US has brought out new guidance for federal agencies that is asking them to review their public access policies to ensure that all federally funded research outputs are made openly available immediately without embargo. This is really, really big news and it is following consultation, but I don't think anybody expected that they would come out with the zero embargo approach that they've taken. Why is all this exciting? Like, what does it actually all mean? As you know, Coalition S is a group of funders that are already requiring that their researchers make their research outputs openly available in this way without embargo. So that's not strange to us here in Europe. We're already having to grapple with that. And one of the big challenges we've had has been when our researchers have collaborators in the US with different requirements, different expectations from their funders, it can be really actually quite tricky for our researchers to have those conversations about why they must have zero embargo, about the fact that green open access and rights retention can be a genuine way to achieve that. These conversations should become easier if US federally funded research is also being required to meet similar standards. We don't know if those standards are going to be exactly the same. The way the guidance has been framed leaves quite a bit open to agencies to consider. So things like licenses are not specified in the guidance that's come out. But there is this requirement around free, public, machine-readable, accessible content and a zero embargo. So this does bring it much, much more closely in line, even if it doesn't end up having the exact same licensing requirements attached. And when is this going to come in? The way it's phrased allows, again, flexibility here because some of the biggest funders in the US already have public access policies in place, but usually with a 12-month embargo. So for those agencies, they just need to update what they already have in place and the timeline for them is likely to be shorter. For many, many other agencies, many of which are much smaller or have much smaller grant functions within them, it is going to take them longer to develop the policies and put them in place and take disciplinary needs into perspective. That's really good. It is interesting that publicly funded research, you know, which might cost a million dollars, you know, that paper and the content is owned by someone else. How on earth does that work? I mean, that that's mind-boggling that a private company may take the outputs of all of this taxpayer's money and lock it away. Like, that. that's mind-boggling. I completely agree. And it's really upsetting how few researchers realise that they actually have power here, that they have choices, that they have influence. The reality is that researchers are giving free content to these publishers. They are doing the peer review for free, voluntarily, in their own time, often with no credit because so much of it is anonymous. They are doing their editorial work for 
if they get an honorarium, it still won't go anywhere near the actual amount of work involved. The full economic cost of their time (laughs) to their employer. Definitely not. And that's even if there is an honorarium, which there isn't always. So the idea that on top of handing away the fruits of their labor freely, they're being charged for it. It's it is it is ridiculous. And then these other companies, some of them are making vast profits on it. It's a broken system and it has to change. So what I've been seeing over the past decade or so is that these publishers are making more and more and more money. Even though the whole open access thing has come in, it's it seems their profit margins are just vastly increasing all the time. And how is this possible? I thought the whole point of this open access to get data stuff out there and to reduce costs, not to actually just vastly inflate their cash piles. You've hit on a really key point that a lot of people are worried about. There is a concern that the easiest way to implement this might be to enable payment of article processing charges or to continue to negotiate deals with publishers that will cover the costs of publishing for all researchers within a certain institution and so on. I do think it's a logical thing to do for institutions in a short term with funder requirements to meet, but it is dangerous. It is really dangerous because it's far too easy to see how we can end up locked into the situation. We need to really actively plan for alternative structures for scholarly publishing that don't just keep on locking all costs into the same publishers all the time. The US actually is in a unique position at the moment because they haven't had the policies that tie people into these gold open access publishing approaches. So they could do things differently. The agencies could take this moment to really consider the issues around equity and make sure that whatever they mandate ensures that researchers and the public are able to access the content and that researchers' voices are able to be heard regardless of which institution they work with, regardless of where in the world they are. This is a really, really important moment. And actually, if this this happened in a thoughtful way, it could address some of the EDI issues that have been really, really significant with the way European open access has been going. I also know the publishers will be lobbying. So (laughs) there is a risk that it won't end up in that beautiful world. There is a risk that it could end up reinforcing this model that ends up having additional income streams all over the place. I guess on the flip side of that, there is say companies like Google and the like who want to consume all the data and they are probably lobbying hard in the US to have it freely open available and machine readable. So hopefully their lobby will be stronger than the publisher's lobbies, you know, and their wallets will be bigger. I have absolutely no idea to what extent Google or others like them have been involved in these conversations yet, but it is in their interest. You're right. This is an opportunity for them. So I was wondering, how is this going to impact the current things going on in the UK? Because the UK has obviously been very much on the leading edge of this for the past few years. Well, the most immediate impact is it does bring things more closely in alignment, which means that we can make more progress. If we can focus the attention of a larger proportion of the research community, then we can start to really address the big issues with the way things have been going. One of the reasons I believe that we've ended up still tied into these publishers is because 
as long as a significant proportion of researchers can ignore these issues and continue to do what they always did and use certain big names as shorthand for quality rather than evaluating research on its own merits publishing in the venue that's most open that creates the greatest access to their content and so on we really never can move away from the models we've had in the past if our genuinely global conversation were to happen and i mean genuinely global so bringing in those global south issues around access into the debate properly as well with equal footing with the other arguments that are out there it creates a space that could lead to something radically different. And that space, I don't believe, has existed before. It is interesting you say that because I guess most of the papers I read these days are actually preprints. They haven't undergone peer review. When I do see the final paper, if I do ever actually read it in the end, you know, it's not radically different to what was published in the preprint. So maybe these alternative publishing models that you're talking about really are the way forward, you know, for example, peer review on top of a preprint or the like. I'm not saying that these other approaches haven't already been in place. The archive has been doing it for years. Physics, maths, astronomy are very used to this way of working. And then more recently, bioarchive has really kicked off in other disciplines. So there already was this trend towards preprinting. But until now, there's still been that gold standard mark beside publishing in a specific journal that has a specific brand. So can I ask, I know Cambridge has its institutional repository. Is there like a global institutional repository where you can deposit things in? Like, I don't know, is it PubMed like that or anything? No, there are repositories that are for institutions, as you alluded to, like the one at Cambridge. There are the ones that are by discipline. So, for example, archive, bioarchive, chemarchive, all these different ones. There are some disciplines that are less well served in general in terms of having preprint service they could access. There are some that are much more open, like preprints.org. But isn't that owned by a commercial company? That is the other big risk with some of these preprint servers, that they are not all community-owned and community-governed. And in fact, there have been examples of Elsevier buying out preprint servers and other journals requiring that people submit via particular preprint servers so that they are trying to force the licensing ownership from an even earlier stage in the process. So another thing I was going to ask you is, the US has obviously announced this, but does it apply to more than just published articles and journals? The guidance is that it will apply to published research articles and journals, yes. It also allows for the possibility that it could apply to things like book chapters, conference proceedings and so on. This is, again, a level of detail that they're leaving open to the agencies to decide. So for researchers right now is the moment. If you would like the funders within your field to take a particular approach, this is the moment to be contacting them and saying, I really think in my field, book chapters are essential, for example. That would be good interesting. You know, if, say, three chapters out of a book of 10 chapters were made open. Well, it's the same principle as maybe five articles from one issue of a journal being open. I guess books are generally seen as a more cohesive thing on a subject rather than just a random collection of papers. I do think it depends on the type of book. So for example, if it was an academic monograph that was conceived as a long form piece of work that had taken years to develop and, and all the articles hung together in a very, very 
planned and structured way. It's hard to imagine taking chapters out of that in that way. But there's quite a difference when you have the collection of essays type books, the edited collection. Obviously, each of those could be independently funded. Although, obviously, thematically, they'll be within one context, the chapters might stand alone quite comfortably. So this applies to US federal funding. Does this have any impact in the UK? Like, is there any funding flowing into the UK? Yeah, absolutely. So there would be some researchers in the UK who receive that funding for their research. So there is that direct influence. There is also the natural indirect influence, which I alluded to earlier in terms of if you're collaborating with people in the US and they have this requirement, then you will probably need to meet that requirement as well. Just as when you collaborate with the US at the moment, you'll be expecting that your collaborators there are meeting the requirements that you have to meet for your funder. So yes, it will definitely have an impact here. I hope that this will be integrated with the guidance from like the Gates Foundation and people like that big, you know, international funders, because it'd be nice to have something more unified so that we're not dealing with 20 different policies on 20 different areas that you have to keep in your mind. I completely agree that there's value in consistency so that there is less need for discussion and explanation of why is this different for one country rather than another country. At the same time, I do still have a bit of hesitation around certain aspects like I absolutely see for example why the CC BY license is essential in the sciences. I'm less convinced about why it's essential in arts and humanities. I think I can see why it's valuable but I don't think it's essential in the same way and I do think there is scope for listening more carefully to the different sectors of the academic community and I don't just mean listening and then fobbing them off. I mean listening and then really considering what does this mean for how we're approaching this and do we need to change what we're doing? I guess it all comes back to taxpayers' money paying for something and any taxpayer should then ultimately be able to get the output of that work if it's you know put together and published and whatnot in some kind of form. Yeah, yeah, completely agree with that. There is no question in my mind that that is how it should be. If a taxpayer is paid for it, then why should it be locked up at all? And of course, you know, companies say in the UK or whatever should also be able to use it, you know, to further their efforts. Like I've heard of no downsides really in practice for being more open about things throughout history, you know, sharing mm. knowledge has always helped and promoted things and made things better. I agree, though I do add that there are exceptions. So for example, there are really good reasons why for commercially sensitive reasons for example people might not want to release certain data in certain circumstances so I agree with you in broad strokes while also recognizing that there can be commercial reasons not to or there can be sensitive data reasons not to so if it's a a project that has dealt with for example indigenous data then you have to take into account what the indigenous community would like to see happening with that data that that belongs to them it's not ours to come and take so i agree in broad strokes but i do think there are also exceptions we have to remember of course like in goya and that kind of thing for for bioinformatics c type data Mm -hmm, exactly and qualitative research anything that involves identifiable data medical research that might include levels of data that would de-anonymize people's personal medical histories there are very good reasons i guess the the paper writing that up is uh, quite different to the underlying data that's anonymized you know the paper itself should be open should be locked behind some kind of paywall 
Oh, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Or absolutely. even where people have paid for something to be open access and then you have to go to a paywall to... That's right. But of course, the OSTP guidance does apply to the data as well as the articles. And it does it does include that recognition for the times when it might not be correct to share the full data, that there might be reasons why that's legitimate to restrict in some way. I guess then that that's the ball being in the researcher's court, which is better. The researcher has power in that respect versus the publisher who is basically just freeloading off the taxpayers in that case. I would say at this stage in the development of the policies in the US, the ball is in the court of the agencies themselves, all the different federal agencies that do this funding. So I think it's not quite in the researcher's court yet, but it does mean when those policies are in place in future, the ownership remains with the researcher in a way that it hasn't in the past. This is one of the things that has driven me crazy when you hear publishers saying, oh, but these requirements take away the freedom of the academics. When in reality, the publishers insisting on their terms and conditions were what was taking away the freedom of the academics. These policies aren't doing that. They, they already had their freedom taken away. I don't know what publishers add these days. I mean, what are they actually adding other than a bit of copy editing, which they outsourced usually to LMICs. Hmm. So I'm not sure what, what they actually add in the, the modern times. And you compare it to maybe some society publishers, which charge a tiny fraction, you know, rather than £10,000 for one article, they charge, you know, maybe a grand or £500. And so I'm not sure where all these publishers are actually adding value mm-hmm. other than just making enormously obscene profits from taxpayer-funded or charity-funded research. In terms of what do they add, I would say that also depends on the publisher. In some cases and in some disciplines, there can actually be quite a lot of detailed, careful handling involved in the in the editorial process, more so than in others. So there are some disciplines where you literally have to provide the content in the LaTeX file so that it is literally camera ready when you submit it. I've done that. Yeah, exactly. So there's much less work clearly added there. There are things around the curation elements helping to find the audience. You could argue that with Google being able to find absolutely everything online, then is that needed? Having ways of curating content so that it is tailored to certain audiences can be helpful. So to be honest, I never go to a journal and look at the index and then go to, oh, what's in the issue this week? It's Mm -hmm. not like the old school where you have physical paper copy in front of you. Yeah. Literally, I would follow, say, links from Twitter or something someone sent me or maybe I've seen it on Slack or or on Discord or whatever, you know, like that's how I find my stuff. Or where the actual uh, paper is published, the journal, doesn't really matter because often I'm going via uh, PubMed, Mm -hmm. which in my field is the kind of centralized database. And then I just might click off a link from that to publish your website. But, you know, the actual journal which is just a skinned website in most cases of some big publisher doesn't really matter anymore i think yeah no i I recognize that that's true for you and it's true for many researchers but it's not true for all researchers or all disciplines i think there are still areas in which it's still valuable to have the ability to do that browsing this is a place where learned societies are quite interesting because if you imagine if you're a member of society that is effectively a community of researchers with a shared interest, a shared passion around a subject. You might want to browse articles by your peers that maybe maybe you're never going to cite them. Maybe it's not directly relevant to what you're doing at all. 
but it's part of your community that you contribute to and get value from. So I think, again, we're back to this, all publishers are not created equal. There are different value propositions from the different publishers. So one of the things that can be quite dangerous, I think, with the STEM focus of a lot of the open research work is this risk that assumptions are made like that, that make entire sense from your discipline that don't translate into another discipline in the same way. I guess within my discipline, there are so many journals covering the area, like in such obscene, you know, granularity that you can never keep up with all of those because you would have to be reading 200 different journals every month. You know? Oh, God, yeah. And so, and a lot of them are continuously publishing as they come out, they pop them into an issue or whatever. And so you can never keep up in that regard. But I do accept that there may be more in specialist areas where you don't have like 200 different publishers. It's like one or two and that's, that's basically it. Yeah. Absolutely. But of course, we're trying to tackle all of those with initiatives such as Dora to try and get away from focusing on the glamour of a publication as a shorthand for the quality. So really, I mean, that's already in institutional policies. It just hasn't made the leap into researchers' minds and practices yet as much. And I think one of the biggest questions is how do we push the research culture change to a place where that isn't the point. The glamour journal isn't the point anymore. The point is you've done some research and you want the world to know about it and you want them to be able to access it and you don't want to have to pay an absolute fortune either to have it done or for people to read it. I do want to add that there are costs involved in publishing. So I don't want to sound like I'm saying it should all be free. I don't think it can all be free. If more of it is community governed, if more of it is institution hosted, if there are different ways of thinking more closely about what are the values that researchers want to have and what are the central things that they need from whatever scholarly communication platform they're using. There are different options in terms of how that could be shaped, but it does still need resourcing. So hopefully this announcement from the US will push us one step further along that journey and you know, come maybe 2030, the entire globe will be marching in that direction and we'll have a much better way and more open way of accessing published research globally. Thank you for listening to Research Pages. Please rate and subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify or whatever platform you use. The views expressed in this podcast are our own opinions and do not represent the views of the University of Cambridge or the Quadrum Institute.